Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. I'm coming to you solo for this episode, and I do realize that a monologue isn't the same as a conversation, but my subject matter is certainly the result of a lot of conversations, conversations with others, conversations with the Lord, we call that prayer, and conversations with myself, which is one way of describing thought. Lord willing, our family will be relocating to Southern Africa early next year to serve full-time in the country of Zimbabwe, and I thought it would be appropriate to take a podcast and relate the story of God's dealings with my heart about a call to foreign missions. But as I prepared to do that, I thought it might be helpful if I could relate some observations about this often ethereal, sometimes confusing conception of a call to missions. I'm sure many of you listening can relate to that description of a calling that is ethereal, confusing. As often as this terminology is used in the context of missions, you might think it would be a clearly defined concept and that we're all basically talking about the same thing. But I don't think that's the case. Some years back, I was preparing to teach a missiology class for a local church Bible institute, and I emailed three questions to a short list of good missionaries that I knew personally. The questions were, number one, what constitutes a call to missions? Number two, how would a man discern a field of service? And number three, what are some problem areas in foreign mission service? All of the answers were very interesting. All of the answers were extremely helpful and thoughtful. But that first question, what constitutes a call to missions, solicited a surprising variety of descriptions from a group of Bible-believing missionaries that are all studying the same Bible in relation to calling. So that was surprising to me at the time. The manner in which we describe the concept of calling has a lot to do with how we understand the will of God and how God conveys His will to His people, especially in more specific terms. I'll not wade into that element too deeply today, but as I said, I would like to make a few observations And I would like to think that these observations could be clarifying in some ways. It's unfortunate that a call to missions is perceived by some young men to be a confusing matter. Our starting point should be the scriptures. And this is precisely where some of the confusion commences, because as we examine the word of God in an effort to articulate our view of a call to missions, there's not as much material as we might expect. We find a distinctive call to salvation through the gospel in places like 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Corinthians 1. We find a clear calling to sanctification and Christ-likeness in places like Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4. We even find a clear calling to suffering in 1 Peter chapter 2. But what you'll notice about each of these is that they are callings which are extended to every believer. I'd suggest that we as believers should be clear about these straightforward scriptural callings before concerning ourselves over much with the seemingly more elusive call to missions. In other words, and this is a really basic principle of practical Christianity, the guidance and direction we long for in the details of our lives are only forthcoming as we obey the things which are clearly binding upon us in the pages of scripture. This is why taking the Great Commission seriously is an important starting point for this discussion. The church has been given a task by our Savior, 
to teach all nations, to preach the gospel to every creature, to be witnesses to Christ in the uttermost parts of the earth. That commission is something that every believer has a responsibility to engage in. The entire object of Great Commission conversations is to try to provoke interested believers to engage in the Great Commission intentionally and strategically. I personally don't believe that this means every believer should deploy to a foreign field, or even that most believers should go overseas or relocate to engage in cross-cultural mission work. Some have proposed this, by the way. Some have proposed that there is no missionary calling, that any believer could be a missionary. Others have proposed that the commission is the call and that every believer should be a missionary unless they are providentially hindered in some way or otherwise disqualified. Now, I'm not of that persuasion personally, but I would offer two observations in view of the fact that proportionally speaking, it seems that very few Christian servants make themselves available for cross-cultural gospel ministry. Number one, I feel certain that if more believers were more serious and more thoughtful about Christ's command to get the gospel to the world, that there would be more people called, for lack of a better word, to foreign missions. As far as I'm concerned, a man should have what he believes is clear direction from the Lord before loading up his family and relocating to some remote region on the other side of the world where he will be forced to learn a different language and culture and be subject to greater levels or at least different types of spiritual pressures. But with that said, I'm not sure why any serious believer wouldn't take a hard look at the Great Commission and ask the Lord if he would have them to go to some other part of the world in obedience to that commission. I think it's an unfortunate reality that so few believers have ever given it any consideration. Secondly, I think that there is a place for non-missionaries, as in those without a definite calling, to deploy to foreign fields and engage directly in cross-cultural mission work. There's no indication that John Mark, for instance, shared the calling that Paul and Barnabas clearly had in the book of Acts, and yet he attached himself to those men as their minister. He didn't complete that first journey, but Paul would later acknowledge that he was profitable to the work. We don't read in Scripture of Luke having a call necessarily to attach himself to the Apostle Paul, who did clearly have a missionary call. Now, Luke may have had this calling, but maybe as a physician, he just had a skill that was useful to the work of missions, and he was willing to go. Timothy's attachment to the missionary endeavor in Acts 16 looks a lot like a recruitment to fill a need that the Apostle Paul had. I wouldn't doubt that Timothy might employ our language of calling later on, but it didn't develop after the pattern of many other missionaries. Might there be a support role for a retired couple, or an expat professional, or a single lady in the work of foreign missions? I think that there is, and I don't know that any of these support workers would require anything like a formal calling to foreign missions. With all that said, if I were going to offer some scriptural framework for understanding a missionary call, I would point to Acts 13, where God separated Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto he had called them. Now, notice a few things, and if you could look at the text of scripture, that would certainly be helpful. The church at Antioch was thoughtfully and intentionally and prayerfully engaged in missions in Acts chapter 13. But God did not separate every believer at Antioch unto the work of missions. There was a distinct calling for a select few. So this is the first thing that I would point to in Acts 13. We sometimes hear the claim that we're all missionaries, and I understand what's meant by that statement. We are all indeed called to be witnesses. 
We are all ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. But I do not believe that every Christian is called of God to engage in cross-cultural missions work, church planting, pioneering work, or harvest work, or whatever you want to call that in terms of the spiritual elements. Now, that's uh, the support roles that I've described previously. I would not include in this necessarily. The honest truth is that some would and some have done more harm than good on a foreign field by going forth at their own charges. This endeavor isn't just one occupation among many others that might be casually chosen. I think we obviously need the Holy Ghost involved in who is chosen to go forth in representing Christ and His church in cross-cultural missions work. So this calling was not an every-member calling in Acts 13. Furthermore, the Holy Ghost called men who were already engaged in ministry within the local church. The Lord's selection of the twelve apostles is another helpful illustration of this element of calling. There was a multitude that followed Christ during his earthly ministry, and then a smaller company within that multitude which were considered disciples. In Luke 6, after continuing all night in prayer, the Lord called unto him his disciples, you'll see this in Luke 6, 13, and of them he chose twelve apostles. It's only after he calls them out that he designates them as apostles, and he sent those twelve forth with a certain task and with certain authority that he didn't send the rest of the disciples forth with. So let's make two additional observations here. In Scripture, a disciple is a learner and a follower. And in the Gospels, no one outside of the Lord's disciples was in the running for an apostolic calling. That is, those apostles, those sent ones, were separated from among those who were already following Christ. And likewise, in Acts chapter 13, in those first four verses, you see there are prophets and teachers at Antioch, and they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're ministering to the Lord. Here's, here's my observation. God selected men from among the prophets and teachers in Antioch, and those outside of that circle were not under consideration by the Holy Ghost. In all likelihood, the reason that some do not receive what we refer to as a call to missions is because they're not callable, or we might say they're not within calling distance. If a man isn't doing what he can where he's at, there's not much reason to expect him to do something more in a place that he's not. Additionally, this word apostle is pretty helpful. I've already given you the definition for it. The word means a sent one. The 12 apostles are designated as such in connection with their sending forth. You'll not only find that in Luke 6, but also in Matthew chapter 10. In the book of Acts, outside of the 12, the apostolic designation is not employed until the sending forth of Barnabas and Saul. We find them referred to as apostles in Acts 14, verse 4, and Acts 14, verse 14, only after they're called and sent. In other words, it's not a prayer card or a mission board that makes a missionary. It's actually a sending forth. And that sending forth is done in conjunction with the Holy Ghost and the local church. So we see that the missionary call in Acts 13 involved a separation and the missionary personnel was separated from a select pool. But as we've already pointed out, that missionary call in Acts 13 is something that is confirmed 
by other spiritual leaders within the context of a local church. The Holy Ghost does the separating and the calling, but the other prophets and teachers lay their hands upon those who were separated and called and sends them forth. Now, listen as I read this passage. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, that is the other prophets and teachers that were mentioned in verse 1, they sent them away, verse 4, so they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So in Acts 13, while the Holy Ghost does the separating and the calling, the other prophets and teachers laid their hands on those who were separated and called and sent them forth. And the commentary of Scripture is that they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost, indicating that the Holy Ghost worked through the men of that local church to send forth these specially called servants to do cross-cultural gospel ministry. So to review, in Acts 13, the missionary call involved a separation. That is, it was not an every-member calling. Secondly, it was from a select pool. Not everyone was callable. And thirdly, it was confirmed by other spiritual men, meaning that there was an objective outward element as well as a subjective inward element. I'll speak more to that in just a moment. One other important note on this Acts 13 calling. Saul and Barnabas were called to the work. That's Acts chapter 13 and verse 3. Even when they returned to check in with the church at Antioch after that first missionary journey, the Bible says in Acts 14 verse 26, and thence sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Obviously, the work of missions is discharged in a geographical location. That's the whereunto in Acts 13.3. And obviously that work is discharged among some particular people group or groups. But those considerations, that is the location of the work and the people to which they were ministering, was secondary in this missionary call. I do think that we sometimes overemphasize geography in relation to the missionary call. Understanding a missionary call primarily in connection with a geographical location or a particular people group can compound the confusion sometimes associated with this idea of calling. The fact is that visas are denied, wars break out, health fails, the needs of a field change, but the work of mission stays the same. Saul and Barnabas began their efforts on the island of Cyprus, as we read in Acts 13 verse 4, likely because of Barnabas's connection to the island. That was an open door to them. But wherever they went, they followed the same basic pattern of ministry. Speaking of the location of missions deployment, I'll interject here one other really interesting text from the book of Acts. In Acts 16, Paul sees his Macedonian vision, which we refer to as the Macedonian call. I do not say that visions such as Paul had are prescriptive for our modern-day missions deployment. What I think is more instructive about that passage is how his missionary team, consisting at that time of Silas, Timothy, and Luke, respond to Paul's vision. Of course, this takes place in the context of their efforts to go first into Asia, which the Holy Ghost forbids them to do in Acts 16.6, and then they essay to go into Bithynia, 
but the Spirit suffered them not. So Paul, after trying to go to two different places and being hindered from doing so, receives this Macedonian call through a vision. And in response, Luke writes this in Acts 16 and verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, that is Paul, immediately we, that would be Luke and Silas and Timothy, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Now, this is not the same kind of missionary calling as that found in Acts chapter 13. Remember, Paul had already been called to the work. This was actually clear direction that was given to those who had already been called as to where they were to work. And for three of the four team members, that direction was not in relation to any direct guidance given to them by God, but the confidence that they had in the guidance that was given by God to Paul. That text really is worth our consideration in relation to how to discern where a missionary should serve. So there's a brief, a very brief expositional description of the missionary call based on Acts 13. I do think it's helpful to have that framework in mind, and I think that the missionary call should resemble the biblical pattern. However, to be honest, the missionary call as we typically use it is not a strictly biblical conception. In terms of how the concept of a call to missions is commonly used, I would offer a couple of observations. First of all, I would say that the missionary call, as we have come to speak of it, is conventional rather than scriptural. That is, rather than strictly scriptural. Now, that observation is not a repudiation, necessarily, of the concept. Every time I've recorded one of these podcasts, I've used the word missions or missionary repeatedly, and those are conventional terms. They're obviously not scriptural terms, even though they're useful to us. As a rule, when a missionary speaks of his call to missions, I think that what he usually means is that he has the absolute peace and confidence that God is leading him into foreign mission work. Now, by that standard, I can say without hesitation that I have a call to missions or even a call to Zimbabwe. But with that said, because I recognize that this calling is not a strictly scriptural conception, I'm not going to wither if travel somehow were restricted to keep me out of Zimbabwe. I would just go to some other place that's accessible to me. And if international travel should shut down completely, which is not outside of the realm of possibility these days, I'll keep doing Great Commission work wherever I'm located, just like I have for the last 15 years or so. The fact is that none of us who profess a call to missions could claim that our experience is precisely like those which we find in the book of Acts, or even among others in the course of missions history. Indeed, it's sometimes pretty difficult for many of us to articulate our calling in strictly biblical terms. But with that said, I am coming to see this conventional sense of calling as nearly indispensable because of the nature of the enterprise of missions as we understand it. If churches are going to invest in missionaries so that those missionaries can get to the foreign field, the church has every right to believe that the Lord actually wants that man to be deployed in foreign mission work. I don't want to support a man that doesn't have complete confidence that he's supposed to move his family to the other side of the world to serve God. And by the same token, as many missionaries would acknowledge, there will come times in the work of missions that men simply could not endure the difficulties and challenges of mission service if they did not sense in their deepest parts 
the clear conviction that they are where God wants them, doing what God wants them to do. So the missionary call, as it is commonly experienced and described, is conventional. It's also deeply personal. And this is the second observation that I want to make about calling as we generally describe it. That's why I think it's so often described in such varying terms. It is an experience independent of the missionary's personality or his life experiences. It's always fleshed out in relation to those things. For this reason, some men will describe their calling in mystical terms, others in more analytical terms, and yet others in textual terms. And as I rattle those off, it might be tempting to presume that the textual approach is the superior approach, but if that's the temptation, then you haven't heard some of the strange textual supports for a missionary call that I've heard. The believer has emotions that are involved, impressions, intuitions, desires, feelings. The believer has thoughts that are engaged, wisdom, counsel, reflection, reason, calculation, priorities, skills, talents, opportunities. The believer has a will that is is involved in relation to commandments, commission, duty, responsibility. In the conventional missionary call, the mind, will, and emotions come into agreement as God deals with the individual and the individual deals with God to resolve itself in a clear peace and confidence that the Lord would have that man go forth into some new realm to do the work of missions. The local church and the pastoral element are critically important here. While this sense of calling is deeply personal, it is not something that develops in a vacuum. And the inward and subjective experience of the individual that senses a call should by all means be vetted and confirmed by other spiritual men in the context of a local church. I certainly hope that this brief analysis of a missionary calling has been helpful. I'm a student of this subject, and if you should have something to contribute, I'd be happy to get your feedback. You can email me, Brother Lee, at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. If this program has been a blessing, you can help get the word out by sharing it with others, as well as rating and reviewing it wherever you may be listening. I plan to take one more solo program to walk through my own experience of the missionary call, and I hope that you'll tune in for that next time. Until then, let's do what we can to get the gospel to the regions beyond us.